Prior to starting this episode, an astute listener brought something to our attention. It's possible that the title of our Is Science Dumb series could easily be misinterpreted or taken out of context. The intent of this series is to explore the efficiency and accuracy of science, and to hopefully fill in some knowledge gaps for those listeners who are less familiar with the scientific process. This should help some listeners in determining the difference between legitimate established science and fringe science or pseudoscience. See our upcoming episode entitled Uncage Human Ingenuity for more info on why it is necessary for us to share concepts from various fields. So please don't get too caught up in the way we titled this series. By the end of this episode, we will have answered the question, in our opinion, on whether or not science is dumb. Proper communication is essential to any lasting realistic change. If the general public does not understand the reasons for change, then the corresponding resistance can make the change difficult, if not all-out impossible. We will be exploring this in more detail in another episode soon when we discuss the idea behind change management. In episodes 3, 8, 17, and 27, we have been attempting to answer the question of if science is dumb. The legitimacy of established science is often called into question recently, and this can have detrimental consequences like we talked about in episodes 22, the poisoning of our well of knowledge, which we'll refer to quite a bit in this episode. There exists a disconnect between the scientific community and the general public. In episode 3, we discussed the idea that media often inaccurately portrays science, which can cause some to question science if this is their main window into this world. In episode 8, we discussed the challenges of ethical and unbiased journalism, and how irresponsible journalism further compounds communication problems in sustainability. The internet has allowed misinformation and disinformation to spread like a virus, The general public then becomes confused and unsure since it's becoming more difficult to determine the difference between legitimate sources and sources only seeking profit or popularity or trying to push other agendas. Essentially, there are so many inaccurate sources of information, it saturates the field with wrong info, leading to further poisoning of our well of knowledge. We explored an example of this in episode 27. In episode 17, we discussed how every field has its own technical language, and these languages are often incorrectly translated from one field to another. As just another example of this, a joke that works in one language often loses its meaning or could even become offensive if the joke is incorrectly translated in another language. Even if the language is the same, small cultural differences can make a huge difference as well. I won't say it here, but the C word in Australia is far different in terms of meaning and offensiveness than the C word here in Canada. If you're not sure what word we're referring to, it rhymes with bunt. Even though these countries share many similarities otherwise. And herein lies one of the biggest challenges at creating a global message. We can't even all agree on the usage of swear words. Although there's one thing that Canada has that makes our country like a trillion times better than our brothers and sisters down under, the Viable Underdogs intro. 
Welcome to Viable Underdogs, where we try and teach you cool things and hopefully encourage everyone to become a bit more sustainable. My name is John, the peer-reviewing expert Carlos is with me as well. This is episode 29, the last birthday many people want to celebrate. Today we're concluding our Is Science Dumb series, and we will answer the following question once and for all. Is Science Dumb? So you can see how the challenges outlined in the other episodes of our Is Science Dumb series make it very difficult to communicate things like scientific concepts to the general public. More specifically, sustainability concepts. We're going to start by discussing a concept many of you probably learned in grade school. The scientific method. The scientific method is, in essence, a scientific framework that provides scientists a guideline to further a field of science, while also trying to minimize human emotions and biases we have discussed in previous episodes. We'll touch more on frameworks in a future episode. It's important to remember that like everything, the scientific method has advantages and disadvantages, and it's not the only process used in scientific progress. As an example of a discovery that did not use the scientific method, Scientists theorized about the existence of black holes, and then found them, but they observed supermassive black holes, and then discovered what they were. Science is a bit of a bad boy who doesn't always play by the rules. You can check out more on black holes in the PBS Nova documentary called Black Hole Apocalypse, created in 2018, starring Jana Levin. The important question to remember in any scientific progress, regardless of the methods employed, are is it testable, is it reproducible, and is it falsifiable? Some philosophical questions fall out of the domain of science if they are not testable, reproducible, and falsifiable. Here comes another fast and simplistic explanation to describe the scientific method. And we'll use the example of comic book movies as another one of our terrible analogies to illustrate the concept. Number one, make an observation. Here's mine. Marvel movies appear to do better than DC movies at the box office. Number two, ask a question. Does this mean that the general public prefers Marvel movies to DC movies? Number three, formulate hypothesis. Marvel movies are preferred at the box office. Number four, conduct an experiment. I will randomly gather 10 people and have them watch a Marvel movie and a DC movie. They will have a button they can push while watching the movies. Pushing the button indicates that the person enjoys something that was on the screen. The movie that results in the most button pushes is determined to be the better movie. Number five, analyze data. The movie that results in the most button pushes is determined to be the better movie. Number six, draw a conclusion. Either DC or Marvel will reign supreme. Now, maybe you already spot some flaws in the way I conducted my experiment. For instance, I was not very specific in the instructions I provided to the test subjects. What does enjoyment actually mean? The amount of jokes, clever characters and plot points, or the amount of space battles taking place. Also, I could skew the results in my favor if I consciously or subconsciously wanted one company, Marvel or DC, to win. 
If I used the box office results or review sites, I could have my test subjects rate movies that could arguably be called an unfair comparison. As one example, I could have my test subjects compare DC's Wonder Woman to Marvel's Hulk. They are both origin stories, but Wonder Woman grossed substantially more money worldwide than both Hulk movies combined. Conversely, the first Avengers movie doubled the box office take of the first Justice League movie. There are other issues too, such as a small sample size of the participants in the experiment. Isolating variables such as these and ensuring outside factors, such as the scientist's own bias, are some of the challenges with science. This is part of the reason for peer review, which is basically the process of having other experts reproduce the original results and experiments to see if they come to the same conclusions. The more times the experiment's results are reproduced, the more likely the conclusive results are accurate. It's important to note, however, that this whole process takes time and it's at the mercy of things like bias, funding, or even prestige. But before we get into that, we need to briefly explain the way peer review works, and we should mention that there isn't exactly one formal process in place, so what we're explaining isn't necessarily set in stone. Once a scientist completes their research, they submit a paper outlining the results to a journal. This journal publishes papers in particular fields. For instance, if I was submitting my earlier findings, I would submit them to a journal specializing in blockbuster movies. Not that I think such a thing exists. If it did, Army of Darkness would be at the top, since it's undoubtedly the greatest movie ever made. The journal's editors decide whether the paper will be included, so the scientist usually starts with the most prestigious journals and then works their way down the list until they find a journal that thinks their paper has merit in the field. To lower the potential for bias, approaches like single-blind or double-blind reviews can be used. This allows the name of the scientist publishing the review and or the reviewers themselves remaining anonymous to ensure the review process is as fair as possible. What this means is, if I were an editor at a prestigious journal and Carlos submitted a paper for review, I'd make sure it went right to the top, because Carlos and I are the best of bros. But this is obviously a biased approach, so it would be in science's best interest for me not to know that Carlos wrote the paper. Or let's say, as a reviewer, I prefer Wonder Woman, because, well, Wonder Woman, and I favorably review the papers that share my opinion. So you can already start to see some potential problems with the system. And yes, this sort of thing does happen. Scientists are always concerned with their reputations and their sources of funding, because sadly, many fields of science may not garner the same amount of interest or financial support as my proposal of determining whether Marvel or DC is better. This may encourage some scientists not to pursue ideas that may be unpopular or controversial. This is further compounded by the publish or perish mentality. Many academic institutions, like universities, use the number of publications that a potential candidate has published as selection criteria during the hiring process. This means that there is pressure to continuously publish new work. And while this may initially appear like a good motivational tool, 
since work is constantly being done, it can prevent longer-term research from being conducted. Here's a quote taken from an article entitled Publish or Perish by Rawat and Mina. The emphasis on publishing has decreased the value of the resulting scholarship as scholars must spend time scrambling to publish whatever they can manage, rather than spend time developing significant research agenda. What this means is that there's an arguable saturation occurring on material that may not be overly beneficial to a field. And it means that there are some types of possibly very beneficial research that is not being performed. Sometimes it can also be difficult to know why a particular type of research may be useful. As a fairly known example, it is highly unlikely that Einstein, or anyone else at the time, could have known that his work would be instrumental to satellites and global positioning systems, or GPS. The lack of a universally accepted system also compounds other issues. There are those who argue that work performed in developing nations is published less than work performed in developed nations. Then there's also the issue that there's a good portion of scientific research that sits behind paywalls thereby possibly restricting access to the well of knowledge. With the challenges mentioned, scientific advancement can often become subject to similar inefficiencies we have discussed in previous episodes. This could result in science advancing at a much slower rate than it has the potential to. Some even argue that the peer review process needs to be upgraded, such as Web 2.0 technologies while others can argue that the peer review process itself is ineffective at detecting issues like a scientist intentionally manipulating the data, which sadly has happened. There's also issues such as p-hacking when statistical data is manipulated to produce a desired result. Feel free to have your brain melted by the statistics show on the Crash Course channel on YouTube. Episode 30 is where they discuss p-hacking. Then there's also stories of climate scientists losing their jobs when funding for many sustainability things like climate change are cut. To restate, these scientists can lose their jobs simply because they are doing their jobs. This can create an environment where some scientists may be careful what they say or which research they undertake if they fear they may lose their jobs. These people have bills to pay and families to take care of as well. This is another example of science and politics overlapping. And in order to uphold our neutrality as much as possible, we won't comment any further, but we encourage you to do more research of this on your own. It probably wouldn't be too much of a stretch of the imagination that since it's sometimes difficult for scientists to get funding, that a person or group could exploit this to their advantage. For instance, if I were in the business of making and selling golden lariats, I could choose to provide additional funding only to those scientists that I suspect already leaned favorably towards the Amazonian princess. This might not be the greatest example, but hopefully you get the idea. There's an old saying when it comes to computers, garbage in, garbage out. This means that if the inputs, or info the computer needs, received are faulty or wrong, then the outputs are just as faulty and wrong. For example, if the temperature sensor in your car or home is faulty, 
the readings of the temperatures it takes might be wrong. So any attempt made to alter the temperature inside the area will be wrong as well. The garbage input, incorrect temperature reading, makes a garbage output. Incorrect temperature is set in your car or home. So just like Goldilocks, you'll be too hot or too cold. And science is in a similar position. The data used to conduct experiments and the experiments themselves rely on the fact that the information is most correct, up-to-date, and free from obvious bias. The experiments themselves must be performed as unbiased as possible with unbiased motivations for performing the experiments. But as we have outlined in other episodes, there's no question that science is occasionally the victim of garbage in, garbage out. For the most part, science is fairly accurate, but it certainly is not perfect. Neither are computers when they have garbage inputs. Conclusion Science, like many other things, currently has to deal with massive challenges like human bias, misleading or incorrect information, funding, communication barriers, and processes that are probably in need of updating to reflect our changing world. Scientific discovery, much like politics, moves slowly by design. This ensures the conclusions formed are as accurate as possible. And even with this mindset, it still has some serious issues it needs to address. So to answer the question, is science dumb? It can be, but for the most part, no, it isn't dumb. However, it may be time to update many of the methods used to further scientific progress. Because as we have said before, there are no perfect solutions, but there are certainly better solutions. Cheers. Thanks for listening. As always, please share and forward this podcast. The first step towards realistic sustainability is in knowledge and discussion, and this can't happen without everyone's input. Please send any questions, comments, or conclusions to viableunderdogs at gmail.com. Our intro music is composed by Mark Kronowski, and the music currently playing by Jonathan Atkinson. Here's a helpful list of sources. The first article is called Scientific Research Shouldn't Sit Behind a Paywall, written by Randy Sheckman on June 20th, 2019. It can be found at scientificamerican.com. There's a good opinion piece written by scientists at baltimoresun.com. The piece is written by Arturo Casadevall and Farrick C. Fang. It's called Is Science in Crisis, published on July 25th, 2015. Publish or Perish, Where Are We Headed, was written by Sima Warat and Sanjay Mina. It was published in February 2014 in the Journal of Research in Medical Sciences. The last one we'll include can be found at www.npr.org. The article is called Climate Scientists Watch Their Words Hoping to Stave Off Funding Cuts. It was written by Rebecca Hersher on November 29th, 2017. Fun Carlos Fact Carlos is always dressed sharp, enough to make even ZZ Top blush. <laughs>